listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. I'm Mary Woods. I'm the CEO of Westbridge Community Services and it's a pleasure to welcome you on this fine March afternoon. We have with us as a guest, Chris Crosby, who has been the president and CEO of the Watershed Addiction Treatment Program since 2004. He was one of the founders of Watershed, which has grown over the past 11 years into Florida's largest private addiction treatment provider. Chris has worked in the addiction treatment profession for the past 29 years. His college training was in nursing, and he was licensed as an RN in 1983. Chris has worked in most clinical areas of addiction treatment. He transitioned from direct patient care into the business development and administration of addiction treatment a decade ago. One of Chris's passions is recovery advocacy, spreading the news that addiction recovery is the reality in which lives of millions of Americans and that recovery is a priceless force for good in our communities. In a career that has spanned over three decades, Chris's unwavering dedication to loving the alcoholic and addict back to health has literally helped to transform tens of thousands of lives. Um, we're going to talk with Chris today about, now that we have parity, what happens next. And welcome, Chris. Well, thank you, Mary. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. How are things in sunny Florida? Oh, they're beautiful. It's about 79 degrees out <laughs> and sunny. Well, that's wonderful. Um, we fought long and hard for parity in the addiction profession. Um, it's been on the agenda for at least 15 years that I know of. And um, what does it mean? Now that we have it. Well, I guess we should set the stage for explaining, you know, to your audience what parity means, what it is. It, it has to do with insurance coverage. And um, people have who, who are still in the workforce, um, if they're fortunate enough to work for a company that offers health insurance coverage, they have some form of coverage for health problems, sore throats, broken bones, maternity benefits. Some people have treatment uh, benefit or benefits rather for treatment of addiction, but the problem that has existed, oh gosh, at least since the early 90s, um, is that addiction treatment is not covered the way other illnesses are. Um, there are severe restrictions on it in most most insurance policies. It may be restricted to, uh, for instance, here in Florida, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Florida restricts uh, about 85% of the policies they write to $2,500 worth of coverage for addiction treatment in the lifetime of that policy. Other policies restrict treatment to so many days per episode, um, $25,000 maximum benefit in the lifetime of the policy, and so forth and so on. So what Parity sought to do was to bring parity or equality in the benefit package that a person has through their health insurance uh, so that it would be treated the same as any other illness. The idea being that addiction is an illness and a treatable illness and therefore there ought to be equal treatment of benefits for addiction. So parity is what we in the industry call this law that was going to make everything better that was going to force insurance companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or United Healthcare or Cigna to cover addiction like they would cover any other illness 
for that insurance beneficiary. And that law did pass, or a form of that law passed, uh, with the financial bailout bill uh, last October, October 4th, I believe it was. But there are severe problems with the law as it stands, and now that we have it, we have to figure out how to get it enforced or how to get it implemented. Right, and this, we, we should also clarify, this is also parity for mental health um, disorders as well. Absolutely, and I, I didn't mean to leave that out, That you're right. Yeah. What do you see as the problems with the parity law as it stands? Well, as it stands, as it was passed, there were some compromises made, and, and the biggest problem is that it's optional. Um, so a health insurance company is going to sell, let's, let's say, ins- health insurance to a large group. Uh, I live in Palm Beach County, Florida. We're just north of Fort Lauderdale. So a big group here in Palm Beach County that buys health insurance is the Palm Beach County Education or the School District, excuse me. So that, that health insurance group covers health insurance for teachers, their dependents, school administrators, bus drivers, janitors, uh, you name it. Um, the problem is is that now, uh, let's say United Healthcare was their provider, I believe it is currently, they can offer that group health insurance and they don't have to offer addiction treatment or mental health benefits at all. They can opt out of offering that. The way it's supposed to work is that if that group insists, no, we want these benefits for our employees and they're willing to pay for them, then those benefits should be written so that, and implemented so that they're not treated differently than, than any other illness. But the opt-out or the optional aspect of it means that, that probably a lot of insurance policies, instead of offering limited coverage, will offer no coverage. I was That's the biggest public- problem. Yeah, I was at a public policy conference last week, and um, there were all different types of stakeholders who were represented at this conference. And, and what the insurance companies are saying is, is that we're more than happy to write those policies. We want to write those policies. It's up to the employer whether they choose to um, buy those policies or not. And I think that what doesn't get talked about is for employers the high cost of health insurance. And sometimes one of the things that insurance companies do is they kind of price that rider out off the market for especially small employers. I think it's going to be a problem more for the smaller employers, and they can opt out entirely and um, even offer insurance benefits with restrictions if the group is less than 50 people in a number. So if you have a small, let's say, restaurant that has 35 employees um, on their health insurance policy, they could actually buy a lesser benefit. Um, Parity wouldn't even apply to them. I think that some of the larger groups are going to ask for um, and insist upon mental health benefits for their beneficiaries and addiction treatment benefits for their beneficiaries. And in that instance, I have other concerns about how this actually will be implemented. And um, I've been a part of some roundtable discussions with the insurance industry and some high-level people within named um, commercial health insurance companies have taken the the opinion that they can offer outpatient benefits only as long as those outpatient benefits cover um, addiction in the same way that outpatient benefits would cover doctor's visits 
and then avoid offering inpatient treatment. And uh, to me, that flies in the face of the law, but there's the rub, so to speak. That's the, the issue is now we have this law. If we as a recovering community, um, and I speak as a recovering American, or if we as a treatment provider community, if I put on my treatment provider perspective, if we don't engage in the process and insist that parity be implemented and enforced in the way that the laws and uh, writers intended it to, then we will have uh, just a name. And I, I, I'm very concerned that the insurance companies are are uh, way ahead of us and uh, much more powerful than the addiction treatment industry or the mental health treatment industry or the public at large, the, either the, um, the coalitions that represent uh, persons affected with mental illness or persons affected with addiction. So there's a lot of work to be done. And um, it's time to roll up our sleeves and try to gather uh, coalitions together and, and do that work. What do you see is the best um, way to go forward? Well, I think that um, putting pressure on your elected officials is probably the only way that we're going to make headway. Um, I do think that um, the mental health industry and the addiction industry both have a long way to go in their willingness to put money into lobbying, but I don't think that we ever will have the, the resources to... Um, to match the health insurance companies. But I think that if we could get the public involved uh, specifically, on, and really on the mental health side, I think that there's a lot more progress in this. Um, organizations like NAMI, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, have been much more effective in uh, advocating um, for a decreasing stigma to mental health and increased um, funding for treatment for mental health than, than have been organizations on on the addiction side. That's just my perspective. I'm not sure that I'm right. But I think that um, there has to be a mobilization, and I think that probably the, the most effective way would be to start with the recovering communities and, and try to get the message out there that uh, this is something they need to get involved in as advocates for, for those who are going to come behind them and need addiction treatment and need uh, addiction support services. Unfortunately, we're in this huge economic crisis and we're faced with um, an even worse situation for the public providers. Um, the public providers have always needed more funding. Um, and what I mean by that is people who seek access to treatment for addiction or for mental health issues often come up uh, against waiting lists and lack of beds so that people um, are only treated for very short periods of time and if they need to enter into a longer-term uh, residential milieu, supportive housing, um, those resources aren't available. And, and that's only going to get worse uh, due to the, uh, the budget problems that, that many states are facing. Here in Florida, we, we just had to cut $1.3 billion from our state budget and I don't think that any amount of stimulus money is really going to make up for that. So what's going to happen is that public providers are also going to be cut to the bone. 
So you're saying what's the best way to get the message out there? I think that um, we have to try to mobilize the recovering community and the community of family members who have loved ones who have suffered from addiction and who have either recovered or have not and try to create uh, and strengthen the coalitions that exist and create new coalitions. Well, you know, um, one of the things you mentioned earlier about um, lobbying, I know that um, NADAC, the Association of Addiction Professionals, they have a political action um, committee, and it's, it's, I think, the only one in America that's just geared to help um, with addiction policy and addiction treatment-related policy, both for the workforce and for the person who is, a, who is afflicted with uh, substance use disorder. And there are other groups as well that have gone to the, the Hill to lobby. And we'll be right back to talk a little bit more with Chris about um, lobbying and uh, advocacy in the recovery. We'll be right back. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <laughs> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. Uh, both Chris and I would really like to encourage any of you who are out there listening and have some experiences with um, recovery advocacy or um, having been denied access to 
treatment, to give us a call and share with us your experiences. Before going to break, I was talking a little bit about um, the public uh, perception of, of addiction and why we have not um, overwhelmed Congress with uh, our lobbying efforts. And, you know, as a profession, we have providers, we have uh, counselors, we have, um, you know, the court diversion people, we have the criminal justice people, and we all go up to the Capitol Hill um, independent of each other, so our voice is splintered. And I think that's one of our huge problems is that all of the people that are involved with trying to advocate for um, fair and just treatment, um, we, we don't get together as, as one large group so that they don't, it's easy to, to divide and conquer because we're, we're so splintered. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, I was sorry. I stepped on you there, Mary. That's okay. That's fine. One of the things that you know that I I want to make sure I mention is the untold story um, that that might help to turn the public perception. Right now, public perception of addiction is very dim. Um, there isn't not a perception that recovery is reality that people actually do recover. There's this perception that drug addicts go to treatment, they struggle, they relapse, they go to treatment, they struggle, they relapse, and they never really recover. And the problem is is that uh, that's not accurate. If that was accurate, then we'd have to look at, gee, uh, how can we do treatment better, which we certainly do need to do. And there is certainly a lot of relapse. But the untold story is the 5 to 10 million Americans who are in long-term addiction recovery and the impact that they have on our community, really on our nation. Um, it was a psychiatrist, uh, F. Scott Peck, who wrote the, the Road Less Traveled, who credited the, the self-help movement, um, really spearheaded by AA, with being the, the largest force for societal change and in the 20th century, um, but certainly um, I, because of my involvement in recovery and my involvement in treatment, um, and just the fact that I've been in the same county for almost three decades, I personally know hundreds, literally hundreds of people, and I know that there are thousands just in my county who are clean well in excess of 5, 10, 15, 20 years who are functional members of society, and they're not just getting by, they're excelling. But that story isn't told. So the story of addiction and recovery is more the lurid drama of, for instance, the television show Intervention, where you see all the screaming and yelling and, and perhaps a little blurb at the end of the show about what happened to this this subject, or the the public face of, of people who relapse and uh, celebrities. And really, the untold story is the, uh, the sheriff's department deputy who's been sober for 25 years or the, the father who has raised children or the mother who's raised children who's been clean and sober for 15 years. And or the pastor that's been sober for 15 or 20 years. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, that story is uh, largely unknown by the public, uh, the general public. And addiction is um, 
people who are in the throes of their, their addiction make great headlines. They do stupid things. They mm-hmm. act out. They get into trouble. You know, just what last week it was Anna Nicole Smith. That poor woman was victimized by the people around her. I mean, Britney Spears. How many people can we meet that have been victimized by the people around them? And and so the addiction gets all the attention, but the recovery never gets attention. How much do we hear about, um, you know, people who were very publicly inebriated in a problem once they get sober? We never hear about them in recovery. And one of the things that helped the parity bill such as it was to pass was that it was led by, um, really by a Republican congressman named Jim Ramstad, who was sober for 20, I don't know, 25 years, something like 27 years, who was very open about his recovery. But that's... And Patrick very, Kennedy. And Patrick Kennedy as well, who was open about his recovery. Yep. And... Um, that's unusual. Most people, almost by definition, once they have uh, passed that phase where they're struggling just to stay abstinent and they're abstinent for year after year, uh, they don't come out and, and, and allow that side of their, their, their personhood, their, their, that aspect of themselves, to be known. And um, so the story doesn't get told. And I think we can look at a couple reasons why. Certainly there's a tradition within the AA community about not um, being public at, at a media or, or national level about being in AA. It's not, and people confuse that with, well, I can't go out and say I'm in recovery. So, so that tradition gets upheld, and, and it's really not the spirit of that tradition because Bill Wilson was out testifying before Congress. Absolutely. Bill Wilson was testifying. Marty Mann, uh, one of the first women to get sober in AA, went on a, I think, two or three year ter- tour speaking to anybody who would listen about alcoholism and, and help turn the tide and get the American Medical Association to view alcoholism as a disease. Right. But um, that is a confusion. Um, for instance, I can say I'm a recovering person. I wouldn't come out and say I'm a member of a certain fellowship. Um, and that is known about me in my own personal life, and uh, I feel like I have a, an obligation to it. I wish I could get the message out to those people who are in recovery in 12-step fellowships that I think they have an obligation to speak to the public at large, to speak to power, to say that they demand that um, their disease is treated equitably, that there is funding, by the way, it makes good sense to do so. Uh, the only reason the insurance companies are interested in denying treatment is they know that a lot of the treatment costs money, and a lot of those people who don't get treatment will fall off their rolls and onto the public-funded treatment providers. Uh, they'll become words of the state, so to speak. Right. Um, if they held on to those people, um, I've talked to people in insurance companies, they recognize that if those people stay insured, then to give them treatment is actually a savings of money because they're not going to have the high expenses that come with untreated addiction. Right. Well, yes, and it prevents longer-term chronic illnesses down the road, such as vascular disease, heart Mm -hmm. disease, um, diabetes, um, and a number of other things that happen to people who have chronic um, substance use disorders as they age. So what we've seen happen in the last, at least in 
treatment funding by um, by commercial health insurance has gone down as a percentage um, of the total American spend on mental illness and addiction, and state spending, federal spending, has gone up uh, inversely because as people don't get treatment, they do lose their jobs and they do become uh, a burden on the taxpayer. Um, even in publicly funded treatment, though, I would say that the state saves $7 for every dollar it spends on treatment for the same reasons. Those people don't get the cardiovascular disease, the diabetes, the liver problem, the hepatitis, the auto accidents, and also they don't get involved in the criminal justice system. So part of the problem is the traditions of the 12-step communities, and part of the problem is stigma, is people's unwillingness to be known as somebody who once suffered from active addiction but who is now in recovery from that addiction. Well, and you know... um I don't want to unjustly bash the insurance companies because I know there are some out there that try to be ethical, but, you know, ever since managed care, which is really managed cost, which you, you kind of alluded to the early 1990s, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's addiction treatment or trying to have a baby or anything else. We have we pay our insurance premiums, but then we don't get access to the care that we pay for. And um, as we're denied that ability to utilize our health insurance, the state and the federal government pick up more and more of the cost for health care. And, you know, this is the biggest, I don't know, scam that the insurance companies have done to the to the government as well as to us, you know. And when you sit down and you say to legislators, that, you know, that a lot of people that are accessing state and federal funds are working people who cannot access the benefits or cannot pay for their benefits, like a light bulb goes on for them. And to me, it's just unconscionable. It really is an outrage. And that's part of the problem, too. You said the problem of lack of advocacy is there is a lack of outrage. People don't realize how big a scam is going on. I'll tell you, here in Florida, our governor, Charlie Crist, um, signed into legislation a mandated benefit for the treatment of autism. And he made a comment at the public signing that the insurance companies could, they could afford it. They had had a record year. This occurred about three months ago. And the local paper where I live, the Palm Beach Post, pointed out that he made an error. It wasn't a record year for them. But the nonprofit Blue Cross Blue Shield Association of Florida had made a $168 million profit. And that's after the CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield of Florida took a $10 million bonus from his HMO division called Blue Cross Health Options of Florida. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not sorry. That's outrageous. In my opinion, that behavior borders on the same type of criminal behavior we've seen in, in on Wall Street. Because what you have is a protected industry, an industry that's protected by legislation as well as regulated, making massive profits and telling publicly um, the legislators and the public at large that health care costs are out of control because providers are making too much. It's just not the case. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, and where is, there is no outrage. I mean, that, that gets to be a little blip in the newspaper. Why don't people stand up and say, we're paying for that bonus? 
Now, we'll be right back to talk about the discrepancies in our health and the security every You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Um, welcome back, everyone. We're talking about parity and recovery efficacy with Chris Crosby, CEO of the Watershed. And before we went to break, we were talking about some of the um, unbelievably, to me, unjust bonuses that some of the insurance companies and CEOs are receiving. And, you know, Chris, I, I guess where, as you said before, where is the outrage? If any of us was diagnosed with diabetes or breast cancer or hypertension, we'd want the best treatment available. And what works for you for hypertension isn't going to what, what works for me, yet we're being told or, or people with um, substance use disorders are being told, you need to go to outpatient, you need to do this, you need to do that. And we're looking for this cookie-cutter approach that doesn't work for any disease. And um, I want to kind of rhetorically ask the same question, where is the outrage? Why don't people stand up and say, we deserve to be treated. We deserve to live better lives. I think that uh, if we could take a, a lesson from the advocacy that was done on behalf of uh, AIDS um, victims or people suffering with AIDS when, when it first became uh, publicized uh, as a disease, that we might get a little bit further. Um, there were groups like ACT UP who did some very, uh, I'd say, rude things. Um, they would go and scream at legislators and scream at policymakers and uh, demand um, that research and treatment be given for the AIDS disease. And certainly there was a big stigma against gays at that time and 
still is in our, our nation, but certainly at that time, gays were viewed as bringing this uh, this evil disease upon our nation. And somehow, um, people with AIDS now get more access to treatment, better funding than people with mental illness or people with addiction. It really is kind of ironic. And I don't say that to say they shouldn't. I think we could learn from them, though. Oh, I don't know really what it will take to get families with um, loved ones who have suffered from addiction and been unable to get the treatment or the recovery community who knows that treatment works. Um, I don't know what it will take to get us educated that addiction is a treatable disease, that addiction responds just as well to treatment as other chronic illnesses like high blood pressure or diabetes. But there should be a sense of outrage. Um, well, you know, last year there was a woman on our show, a mom who lost her son to addiction, and she said that after her son overdosed, people kind of blamed her, you know, and, and some of her friends, quote-unquote, um, you know, kind of stopped hanging out with her and, and that there was a stigma that she felt because her son overdosed and somehow it was it was on her. And I think that's so sad and I think other people experience that as well. Well, I think that's part of the problem with addiction is there is so much shame, so much moral judgment placed upon addiction that, that people... Um, shrink back because they, they, I think that even the recovering community to a certain extent accepts part of that judgment and believes that, well, to a certain extent, I am at fault for having had this problem. Um, I would just say that even people who, who do contribute to their health care problems still receive treatment in our nation. Diabetics who don't comply with their diabetic diets or with their exercise programs, still get help when they um, when they experience problems. And um, you're absolutely right. We have to somehow educate ourselves as a recovering community or as healthcare providers that that no, it's not okay that that this disease does respond to treatment and that human beings do deserve to be cared for when they're ill, even if that illness is in part a result of their own bad behavior. Right, right. I don't think that it, it does us um, any good to deny that there is some aspect of addiction. Um, it's very hard to separate which comes first. The truth, though, is that once a person, that some aspect of addiction that is self-inflicted, but once a person crosses that line into addiction, they lose the power of choice and they can't get out and we should and can help them to get treatment for their addiction, and we would do well to do so. It would be good and the right thing to do, and it would also help all of us because when a person's in recovery, they're not only not hurting other people, they are helping their community. They're living by a set of principles that causes them to be tolerant and responsible and honest and to have a really a drive to serve their fellow human beings. And that's what we in, who, who know about recovery know to be the case. We just need to tell that story. You know, um, it's, it's, it's amazing to me when, as we're talking here 
you know, we talk about the responsibility that the insurance industry has. We talk about the responsibility that people in recovery have to um, put a face on recovery. But, you know, I also would like to suggest that we have a responsibility as treatment providers to truly treat addiction as a disease and not as something that is, um, you know, you're in denial and come back when you're not in denial. When people are in the throes of their addiction, when they're actively using substances, they get denied treatment by the treatment providers or they get thrown out of treatment. It really is a shame. It it is a a matter of, of ignorance and... And so we contribute to that discrimination. I think it's discrimination myself. I think we're way beyond stigma. I think that people with substance use disorders, disorders get discriminated against everywhere. And I think, I think as treatment providers, we're just as guilty as anyone else. You know, what gets me is that I have had such um, a rich amount of personal experience, not just myself, but in my family, I have seen the benefits of recovery. Um, I think about my brother. My brother did an intervention on his father-in-law, who was a retired gunnery sergeant from the United States Marine Corps. This occurred over 20 years ago when the Marine Corps or the the CHAMPAS, now the TRICARE benefit, would actually pay for adequate treatment, which is not the case anymore. And this gentleman um, went into a 28-day program came out, hasn't drank since, and is a totally different person. He went in as a really nasty, mean, violent person. And and since that time, he's been a part of the lives of his grandchildren as a kind, caring, responsible person. He works in volunteers in his community. Actually, he and his wife go down to the soup kitchen. So these are this is just one anecdotal story in thousands that I know of where I see the power of addiction, and, and, and now I know that somebody else in 2009 who served their country for 20-some years in the military and is on a retirement um, health insurance cannot get that treatment. It, it just will not happen. They will perhaps get five to seven days of detox, and it really is an outrage, and it's just plain stupid public policy, it, it, it ends up costing us more um, economically, but um, those costs, are they pale in comparison to the human costs to families, to, to people, to our communities. And when we as treatment providers discharge people because they've used alcohol or drugs while in treatment or we tell them to go home and come back when you're sober, um, you know, we're sending a pretty, uh, I think, um, shameful message ourselves. And, you know, I, I think well, Absolutely. That, That's punishing the patient for being sick. Right, right. And, that's and like that's sending considered... somebody home from the hospital saying, well, you know, your, your tumor's really too advanced. Right. Come back when your tumor's smaller and we'll treat you. But that's standard practice in a lot of treatment centers all around the country. It is, and we need to stop that. You know, um, um, I was talking... Excuse me, I was talking to a a colleague of mine here in New Hampshire just about this very topic about not discharging people when they view substances. And while he agrees with me, he said, and and he's he's a man who's been in long-term recovery and is well-connected in the uh, addiction profession, he said, "I I could not say that in front of my peers. 
because he said he fears he wouldn't be accepted. Well, he could agree with me privately, and in his own shop, that's what they do, but it's on the QT. He doesn't broadcast that's what they do. That's not one of the things that's on their website. But because he doesn't want to be stigmatized by his peers in the profession. Well, I'm glad to say publicly that we do not discharge people. Nor do we at West Using drugs. Unless there's really extenuating circumstances. Even if somebody became a threat or a problem in the community, at least we could find that person treatment elsewhere and do a direct facility-to-facility transfer. Right. Um, Really, people, when they come into treatment for addiction and for various mental health disorders, and many people have both diseases at once, um, they're unable to act um, better than they're acting. If they were, we wouldn't need to exist. Right, and they're doing the best they can with what they have to work with, which usually isn't very constructive. So we need to end the discrimination within the industry. We need to end the discrimination within our society. And I think that, I hate to say this because it, it sounds so abstract, but I think that there's a lot more education that needs to be done. There's a lot of uh, stories that need to be told and then accepted as true, and a lot of um, untrue myths that need to be um, that need to be shattered. I was on a radio program that's local. Um, I don't know about six or seven months ago, and talking to the the host there, and I, it was a panel discussion. And one of the hosts said, "Oh, well, let's talk about the the elephant in the room. Everybody knows that." People go through treatment like it was a revolving door, and they just relapse. And this is somebody who's promoting recovery, supposedly. And I said, I absolutely disagree with you. That is not my experience. That's not the experience where we study the patients who go through treatment at the watershed. Um, We see recovery rates, or or at least one-year abstinence rates, of about 60%, which is way better than you'd see in response to treatment for diabetes or for high blood pressure. And I work within our own treatment facility and new employer orientation to try to dispel some of the myths and bad information that exists within the people that we're hiring. I point out to them that I know people who have cancer who've been through several rounds of chemotherapy. I would never think of saying, you know, hey, uh, buddy, why don't you just die if you're not going to get well? I recognize that sometimes health care is to keep a person um, alive until you can cure their disease, to improve somebody's quality of life. We'll be back with our final segment with Chris Crosby's Watershed A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom <laughs> and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh, Shell, get away. Play with them, dear. Hornets hate high-pitched noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Now, knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see! Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow! For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may contain vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking today with Chris Crosby from the Watershed Addiction Treatment Program. And we're talking about parity and recovery advocacy and basically the discrimination and stigma that people with substance use disorders experience on all levels. And um, a couple segments ago, we were talking a little bit about why healthcare costs so much. And uh, Chris, what's your theory? Because it's big business. That's why it costs so much. Because there's a lot of money to be made in it and a lot of people are making a lot of money. And those people are the people within the insurance industry, and in some cases, they're shareholders. 
Well, that's a discussion for another day, whether or not health insurance companies should even be for-profit entities. Many of them are. They have shareholders, and it just takes common sense to think, how can I hold health care insurance premiums down if my job is to make profits for my shareholders? And um, even the nonprofit entities, I mentioned Blue Cross of Florida with a $168 million publicly reported profit in the year 2008, which wasn't that great a year for the economy, so you can imagine what they did in a good year, um, and the CEO taking a $10 million bonus. Now, for-profit companies, United Healthcare Group, back in 2007, um, their former CEO, Dr. William McGuire, this is public knowledge, so you can blog it or, or Google it if you want to on Wall Street Journal, he got a $1.2 billion, that's a billion with a B, $1.2 billion bonus. And he got into trouble because he backdated his his stock options, and that's how he got it up to uh, $1.2 billion. And after he had given some money back because the federal government was coming after him, he he, he ended up with um, only $800 million. Now, in the meanwhile, we're being told by these same health insurance companies that the reason health insurance premiums are so high, is that providers charge too much money. And well, it's a crock of, um, shall we say, bovine excrement. That's why health insurance costs so much, and um, we got to do something about it. we got to push back, and the only way we're going to do that is to raise our voices. I-, I would encourage your audience to, if they're interested in getting involved in recovery advocacy, to go on to facesandvoicesofrecovery.org and, um, or just Google their local recovery advocacy. Type in addiction recovery advocacy in the state you live in and you'll find the chapter of some organization that's doing something about it. And to get involved because it's easy to complain. But if we don't do something about it, we really, uh, we may not have the right to complain. And now with um, the focus on health care reform, it's an ideal time for people to stand up and say, this is what's important. And, you know, are you okay with your insurance premiums going up every year and knowing that people are getting huge bonuses as a result of your hard-earned money? And so, and are you okay with somebody working at a job for five years, three years, ten years, twenty years, and then when they need treatment for themselves, or their wife, their husband, their son, their daughter, there is no meaningful treatment. Either because the benefit is um, limited to a a low dollar amount or because there's a huge benefit on paper, but the insurance company won't authorize any treatment. So we need to speak up about that. We need to, to tell the story that addiction treatment works. People do recover. They become productive members of their society. They contribute. And we need to educate ourselves as treatment providers that this is a, is a disease, that we shouldn't punish our patients for being ill, that we should provide treatment um, as good as we can, and we should look at ourselves honestly and figure out how we can do better. Well, and there's also another show would be access to care. Um, while we have a huge need for treatment, the available treatment beds are minuscule in comparison to what the need is. That's true. The government agency, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, they estimate that 23 million Americans need treatment, and 
about 1.3 million receive it in any given year. So there's a huge problem of lack of access to treatment. And that problem uh, is something that we've got to continue to work on. And we can't just say we got parity, we're okay. I guess that was the, the title of this program, Parity, What Now? And really now it's time to get to work. And find your voice and find a way to um, make a difference so that no matter what your illness is, whether it's substance use disorders, mental illness, or you need an appendectomy, just make sure you get access to your benefits. I was thinking about this recently. I took my daughter, who's a just about to turn 18. She's a track athlete. She runs um, the two-mile and... I took her down to the race for the cure, which was held on the same day all over across America to raise money for breast cancer research. And we went down to downtown West Palm, and there were thousands of people out there. And they they had raised money, and there were survivors, and the survivors of breast cancer were celebrated. They weren't put off in some corner saying, oh, shame, shame. They had breast cancer. And I see this happening, and it just made me think, gee, um, I'm glad that people are getting treatment for breast cancer. How many of them can't get treatment for their addiction? Right. And um, it just shows the work that needs to be done. Um, Speaking of treatment, do you want to spend a couple minutes telling us about Watershed and what you do there? Absolutely. Well... We formed the watershed back in 1998 when managed care was perhaps even bleaker than it is now and insurance reimbursement was perhaps worse than it is now. And we started uh, treating addicts. um, And we've grown over the last 11 years to where we have a 52-bed primary care treatment center in Boca Raton, a 120-bed primary care treatment center in Boynton Beach, about 10 miles north of the Boca facility, and and a 120-bed extended care treatment program, uh, which consists of step-down levels of care for people who've already gone through the watersheds, detox, and inpatient rehab. And um, so we've been around about 11 years now. We've grown to be one of Florida's, I think, Florida's largest private addiction treatment provider, and one of the things that was in my mind at the very beginning was that we will not accept managed care's denial uh, of coverage for people who have legitimate criteria who need the treatment. They're sick. We will treat them and we will fight the insurance companies. And that's what we've been doing. And um, we didn't, we didn't uh, think that we would cater to the rich and famous, but to middle America. So we're doing that. You can find us on www.thewatershed.com. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris, for uh, spending this hour with us. And um, hopefully encourage some people to find their voice and advocate for recovery. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week. Same time, same station.
appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.